Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I'm your host, Alex Danson, and we're excited to announce that we're bringing the Cafe Bitcoin conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Michael Saylor, Lynn Alden, Corey Clipston, Greg Foss, Tomer Strolight, and many others in the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode. You can join us live on Twitter Spaces Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern every morning to become part of the conversation yourself. Thanks again. We look forward to bringing you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. It feels weird being back because of the Friday episode, you know, that because uh, Spaces was shut down. So it feels like we had like a lot longer of a week, a weekend. Uh, yeah. At first, I thought I, I, I thought it was just some kind of technical bug or whatever. But, I mean, there were people saying, oh, see, Elon got triggered and, you know, had a dummy spit. Yeah. And now he has uh, <laughs> put up a poll asking if he should step down as the head of of uh twitter i guess is that poll finished now i think it is i think he's still got a bit more on it i think it was it still had like a day last i checked i just think he's been a bit mercurial right like there are times where you know maybe you just kind of should just like let and sit let things sit for a little while before doing a big change again you know yeah i agree with that oh no you're right you're right it is final i just checked that poll it is final 17 and a half million votes and 57% said 57 and a half percent said yes. So what's interesting about it is first of all, first of all, there's a lot of sweet irony that a lot of people <laughs> missed when he said from now on, he, he, right before that poll, he said like, from now on, every decision we'll make will be by vote or some, something to that effect, which of course was a decision he had made, not by vote. So <laughs> there was kind of a, uh, I, I thought I thought he was joking, but the joke went over a bunch of people's heads. And then saying that he would abide by the poll, asking whether he should step down or not, was obviously trollish in one of several possible ways. Like he'd already decided to step down and knew the results, or and perhaps already knew who he would put in place, or he won't honor the poll. <laughs> he won't abide by the results, and uh, and is just having fun with everybody. But he's he's really getting a lot of engagement from people, and. Uh, whether that's for good or bad is a whole other question. The bigger issue was, of course, the previous thing where Twitter announced that they won't allow, that they might remove links to competing websites from people who are suggesting that they use other, that people use other social networks, which, which is kind of like, this is a free speech platform, except if you want to speak about anything that's harm, that potentially competitive to us, which is... Uh, hypocritical to say the least. But yeah, I mean, he, he has since walked that specific thing back after the uh, the outrage online. Yeah, well, that that was, you know, like you can now already start to feel right away what things are going to have to be walked back. And it's another interesting thing to think about. Like when you see something said and you already know the minute that it said that it won't stand, that it won't hold, there again, there's some meta thinking about it. It's like, well, obviously the person who posted it 
wasn't naive enough to think that it would stand. So they posted it knowing that it wouldn't stand. Why? What's going on here? <laughs> like, what's the, what gate, like, this is 3D chess or 4D chess. There's something more, there's something more going on here. Um, unless it was really that stupid that someone, someone somewhere made such a obviously uh, anti-free speech <laughs> post using the Twitter support account. It just seems <laughs> like maybe I'm too much of a conspiracy theorist or, or just give too, people too much credit for being able to think about what's obviously not going to stand. But it just seems so silly. Yeah, my guess is they just didn't think it through all that much. And then after all the feedback, they realized, ah, oh, yeah, actually, this is not really a great decision. So let's just walk it back now. I, I think a lot of people are being incredibly opinionated about what Elon should do with the new business he just spent. And I, I don't mean you guys, I just mean journalists in general. A lot of people feel that they have input. And I guess Elon's doing that by uh, raise, raising these polls and things of this nature. He's engaging people with these conversations. But it's a, it's a private company. He just paid 50 plus billion dollars for it. And I don't assume that he's going to stop doing things to his own interest anytime soon, regardless of what they are. I imagine he'll continue to make mistakes and backtrack on those. But I, I really do truly think what everyone's missing here, and again, he was laughed, Dave Chappelle brought him on stage and he was laughed at um, by the entire audience. And then some journalists were writing about that and the, the Elon Musk jet account um, and any of the journalists that report on that. The, the jet tracker, they got banned and people linking to Mastodon, which is where the Elon jet account is now live and active. We're also getting banned. I think what's really important to Elon here is the, is the throughput of Twitter and the new amount of created user data daily. And I think inputting that information into the different AIs and, and different types of things he's working on and other aspects of his business Will will yield a lot of benefit as far as as, as data input. Um, tw Twitter is probably one of the largest through pipes on the internet internet for new data creation in, in, in a text form that's, e that's easily understood by artificial intelligence. Um, so it's a it's a giant pipe of data he's able to benefit um, some of his uh, software with. So I think there's there's more to that too. Is is that data feed worth fifty billion dollars and all the headaches that come with it? I don't know. I, I think data is the, is the oil of the future, right? Data, information, data sets, they represent time to these companies. So when you have completed data sets, you're just buying six months of work that some guy's computer or some net neural network or something's accomplished. And that's how these... Sure. Look, good guy. I'm not disagreeing with you. I just asked the question, is it worth $50 billion? <laughs> I don't know. Greg was waiting. Good morning, Greg Foss, and then we'll go to Tomer. Hey, good morning, guys. I tried to stay in the audience to listen. Uh, I can't stop talking, right? Uh, look, you don't agree with it? Management by committee does not work, okay? Yeah. If anyone sends out a poll and expects to run a company based on what a bunch of woke fucking idiots have to say, then you shouldn't spend $44 billion on a company. Yep. So the number is $44 billion, It's not 50 And the reality is, if I you know. don't agree with it, come up, up with... Come, no, no, rounding. I'm just saying. It's a good guy, Biker Tooth, look. If you don't agree with it, come up with $50 billion, do it your own way, or do it by uh, doing a, a competing platform. It's that simple. Everyone wants their cake and eat it too, and then not pay anything for it. So 
this is, in my opinion, one, it's his poke in the eye at how stupid the system is, okay? Thinking that people would actually think that he would agree to step down just because a poll that's manned by millions of Russian bots and Democratic uh, uh, supporters want him to sit down. Go fuck yourselves, people. Get some money. Step up to the plate with real money or else go pound sand, right? Incidentally, I'm applying to be the ECO of Twitter, okay? The eccentric Canadian operator. I'm running my own poll, okay? Get me on the board with Elon just because. Why? I don't know. It's a poll. Do you think I'll abide by it? Anyway, Good to talk to you guys. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. I'm stepping down. Might is right and money is might, okay? Remember, you can have all the fucking thoughts in the world and you have no money. Too bad. You mean nothing. God rest or God believe it's in capitalism. Capitalism rules the day. Creative destruction is capitalism. This is part of creative destruction and knocking down the barriers that the idiot woke community put up at Twitter to begin with. So good day, everybody. I love you. Thanks, Greg. Love you too, Greg. Uh, you know, Greg's final comment. I, I, I can't remember. I think it was like 10 years ago I first heard this. It's like, you have to abide by the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. And that was, um, I think that's what Greg was just kind of saying. I think one of the interesting things, uh, our good friend Gigi has an article out today about the value-enabled web. And maybe I'll dig it up and share it here. Um, the kind of is trying to propose a different alternative to the world we live in that good guy biker was talking about where you are valuable not because you spend money you are valuable you're valuable because someone's mining your data and getting you addicted to and in the attention economy to things like twitter and to views that they're able to sell to advertisers um so it's not the money you know like you used to buy a magazine. It, yes, it had advertising, but it wasn't. It, it it made significant money off of its circulation revenues, and many things were not built off of advertising models. Uh, and the advertising w didn't wasn't hooked up to artificial intelligence bots and personalized to you. Right now, because of the way that the internet is structured, the attention economy becomes the only way that these businesses can have business models, and. And this leads to a whole lot of terrible things, which Gigi points out in his article. And he also points out, look, there is a solution, the value-enabled web, value for value, where you might choose to pay for support someone's Twitter feed, support somebody else's blog, support someone else's music creation. The economy can get very effective very quickly. You, you don't need a ton of people to support you financially to be a content creator. That's, I'm not saying you're going to have private jets to fly around in. You're not going to be wealthy like the superstars of, of the recording era or, or today's Hollywood superstars. But the point is that you can make a living because right now content creators can't really make a living unless they create content that's very ad friendly and they can't make it at all on think, platforms like Twitter or blogging platforms. They have to do it on sites like Twitter, like uh, YouTube rather, sorry. And, and, the only people who make money on YouTube sites are people who make content that is very friendly towards advertising. So it, the whole thing just becomes about manipulating people's minds and seeking their attention. And, and as Gigi says, Bitcoin fixes this. So I'll see if I can find, uh, I'm sure I'll find his tweet quickly and, and share it. It's a bit of a lengthy article, even for, even for Gigi, but it's always beautifully written and really intelligent. And so I, I recommend people find time for it. And I suspect that within a couple of weeks time, our friend Guy Swan will 
probably have an audio version of it available. I, I agree with everything you just said, Tomer. Um, the only thing I'll add is I think that the niche the niche markets do really well. And I think you see that in some of the the, the, the shitcoin audiences and discords. There doesn't have to be a large amount of people in these communities. But if they're able to convert, you know, a hundred of several thousand that are are, are regular viewers, um, yeah, sometimes those really niche brands work really well too, even with small audiences. One other thing I wanted to just throw in here is, I mean, I, I'm sort of in the middle. Like, I, I kind of, I kind of, I mostly agree with Gigi, but I also think it could also be like circling back a bit to what Good Guy was saying earlier about how people are going after you for the data and so on. Is it possible that some of that is on bad metrics? Like in in the dot com days, they were valuing things based on eyeballs and not on actual revenue and profit or on profit, right? And is it possible that some of the you know some of the fiat problems of the world, right? And again, coming back to what Bitcoin fixes, it could also be that you know there is a place, some place for advertising as a model in the world, uh, but that some of the things the the avenues that businesses are going and chasing down have been driven by the fiat printer also that this idea of valuing people for the data or whatever like why is that even that valuable like at the end of the day what really is valuable is selling something to somebody right like so i think maybe there's an angle there also that you know th that maybe that angle could also be explored a bit you know i think, think stefan the access to that information has been a big part of that. There's a lot of monopolization in the data collection area. You know, Google AdWords, without a doubt, is far and above uh, the, the vast majority of these other operators. And then you've got these these news network and these centralized entities um, that form kind of, you know, one piece of content goes out to hundreds and hundreds of different news aggregates. So it's very centralized. It's very monopolized. And the access to that data, you know, it's Google that has always convinced us to put those trackers on our websites that allow us to use their advertisements. And there's not a lot of other trackers people are regularly putting on their websites in, in a natural way. So, yeah, I think it's the monopoly more than anything else of that information that makes it so valuable. It's the, it's the monetization of that data. That's where the money lies. Yeah. That's the attention economy, like wherever the people's attention is. And you, if you can predict where people's attention is going to be, that's worth something. I guess that's what, what the market for this information is. All right, let's do a quick intro for the show, and then we'll keep rolling here. Uh, you are listening to Cafe Bitcoin. Good morning and welcome. This is episode 242. You have 12 days left to tax loss harvests in the 2022 tax year. If you want to know more, shoot me DM. Fountain uh, from the Coin Father. he boosts us and says, love the show. I have orange pilled almost all my family members. Just wish many of my buddies at work in the Air Force would too. I agree with you, man. Uh, Brent says, great show. Thanks, Brent. Supporters are anon. User 561467, MA31M0, Navigator, Sat Nakamoto, RAG3AF, and Heidi Bikes. Uh, normally, we have Ant on to do our stats. I'm going to read them out. The Bitcoin impenetrable force field. Level is at 252.9 exahash. This is an average over the last two weeks. We're one one year, four months from the next halving. You can buy 5,977 sats per US dollar. 91.6% of the total supply of Bitcoin has already been issued. Isn't that crazy? We just don't have that much far to go left, I guess, over the next, uh, what is it, Tomer, 140 years or whatever. But uh, most of it's already been 
already been mined and issued. Peter, you got your hand up, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to give a nod to um, Tip NZ who uh, produced and, and created the Cantillier's uh, game. Um, uh, saw the, 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 the track that was playing when we first came into the room here for those that came in early. Uh, it is now on Spotify and I put it up in the nest. Nice. Love that song. Going back to this, uh, you know, what's going to happen with Twitter? Why do we even care? Well, I care because I run my morning show on Twitter spaces. <laughs> so I care. Uh, Lix Friedman suggested he did a tweet. He said, fun suggestion, Elon Musk. Let me run Twitter for a bit. No salary, all in. Focused on great engineering and increasing the amount of love in the world. Just offering my help in the unlikely case it's useful. And Elon responded to him. He said, you must paint like pain a lot. One catch. You have to invest your entire life savings in Twitter. And it has been in the fast lane to bankruptcy since May. Still want the job? <laughs> that was a great response. Does I mean, Twitter wants, have the network? Uh, does Twitter already have the network effect that is going to um, make it so that it continues to be the the town hall, the main um, uh, place for this kind of activity for some some time to come into the future? I mean, there was a MySpace before a Facebook, right? I think it's always going to keep changing eventually. Yeah, who? I mean, how can you possibly even predict? I don't know. Palmer, what do you think? Well, I, I, I want to go back to your comment that you read that Elon made, because I think that's his answer to the poll, actually, as well. And he's like, if I'll step down and someone else can step in, provided they put all their skin in the game, right? Put your whole net worth into this thing that looks like it's headed for bankruptcy so that I can trust that you're not going to let it go into bankruptcy because you go over the cliff with me. This is a very classical view of the world like how the romans made bridge designers live under the bridge that they built for five years to make sure that they had incentives so that it wouldn't collapse and this is this is what elon is saying it's like i'll step down when somebody else is prepared to step up not to earn a salary and potentially fuck the thing up but to put <laughs> to put their life into it and who here would be prepared to do that like i, I don't think i could save twitter to the point of being of risking my entire <laughs> net worth and life savings for it, so I I respectfully decline, and I think and I think it's easy to vote. Oh, you should step down in a poll. It's another thing to say, well, who steps up, who gets the job done. It's it's kind of an interesting crossroads we're at because to me, like the way we run spaces, just as an example. I mean, really, to me, this is. This is kind of like a battle over the rules of the forum, so to speak. So if Twitter is just go go with go with me here for this scenario, if Twitter really is the town hall, so to speak, like really what people are arguing about is control over the rules of how people interact on the town hall, basically. You either have, you know, everybody just gets into the room and screams at each other, kind of like the floor of the <laughs> New York Stock Exchange, maybe. Or like in spaces, like we've turned this into more of what I consider a Socratic forum. But the only way we've been able to do that is we do have rules of it. We have rules of the road, so to speak. We have etiquette that we have, we all agree to abide by, which has make it made this space in particular what I consider to be pretty uh, calm in comparison to some of the other ones. So I think 
you know, the, the, the part about determining the rules of the road for the platform, like if the only way it's valuable is as a propaganda megaphone for big pharma, I guess big pharma was one of the biggest advertisers on Twitter. Right. And then, um, you know, you have these people who have crap tons of money. Why do they have the crap tons of money? Well, I would argue because the money's broken in the first place, the cancel on effect, et cetera, has contributed to the situation that they're in. So then they have the money to throw at the platform and they're the only ones willing to spend the money to make it a viable business. I don't know. It's crazy to me. And, you know, part of what I'm thinking, I, like, is, Greg, is, oh, yeah, Greg is still up here. So, well, maybe, maybe my Twitter is wrong. But, you know, Greg talks a lot about being a good risk manager, diversifying your risk away. Elon has a very different view of the world. He says, the only way I'm really going to get anything done is if I put all my eggs in one basket and face complete annihilation if I mess up. And that's what's going to give me the motivation to do something as outrageous as land rocket ships or build an electric car or take over this totally fucked up social media plat platform. And it's a, it's a different incentive scheme that runs in one's mind and a very different mindset to approaching, <laughs> approaching the world. Most people who take Elon's view at some point in their life get completely wrecked. <laughs> Elon's kind of way out there on the, you know, whether he's worked super hard or gotten a little bit lucky or a whole lot of both. Um, it's it's a different thing, and I'm sorry that I'm not I, I'm going backwards a little bit and not addressing exactly what you said, Alec. But it just it's it's striking to me how these two philosophies coexist uh, at at the same time, and and the different results you see from different people who pursue them in different ways. Well, everything Elon's done has been a lot of subsidy farming and government money farming. Um, he's I'm, he's I'm, lucked out. He's he, he's gotten well, really no, lucky no, right I think, by the I skin think he's of his teeth a couple that. times. Right. No, I think specifically he's moved to sectors in a timely ways as the regulations and, and, and subsidies start to emerge. And I think that's why we're seeing Elon move towards the chip production in America as well. I think that's why we're also seeing him buy a lot of the wellheads in different places um, that are not being used. And I wonder if we're not missing something because so many aspects of his business get directly funded through subsidies and grants. Is is he blowing up Twitter to a point that government entities step in and do some kind of incentivized financial incentivization to turn it into the quote unquote town hall? Town hall? Do you think that he's got some kind of um, grant or subsidy play here in mind? Perhaps I, I can't. I, I haven't thought of this yet. But everything else he's doing is very heavily subsidized. Well, I, I think you, you make a you make a couple of very good points and. and He's prepared to take things right to the brink, like Tesla. For people who've read his biography or the history of Tesla, Tesla was literally hours away from declaring bankruptcy when a $200 million U.S. government federal grant came in to snatch it from the abyss. Um, and, and Elon actually has a statement, and I think it's in his biography, where he describes entrepreneurship. as a, I can't remember the exact metaphor, but it's like staring into an empty void of an abyss while chewing on glass shards it's something as dark and dreary as that and and like and that's how close he's come to the edge so many times with what he's done and so he may he may know that that's what it takes to get government to act right like this thing which is the only hope for electric vehicles is about to end and nobody will do it again in the future unless in the next few hours you pass an emergency measure to protect to save it that's that may be the incentive that's needed. And the same thing may be a setup 
right? It may have played out in a slightly different way, but there's like a game theory involved here, which is does it does he in the same way that I said sometimes like the best way to win in a game of chicken uh, where two cars are racing head on is you pull your steering wheel off and you throw it out the out the window and your opponent sees oh shit like we got no choice here he's actually going to crash head on to us so we've got to surrender and I think he's he's made these he makes these commitments just as I was saying about uh, about right. Twitter he's put it all in all right you want to let, let, let's fine. switch gears let's let's you know using a, an automobile metaphor let's change gears this is let's talk about Bitcoin I think people are tired of talking about it. I don't know what the solution is going to be, if there's even going to be a solution. But um, for people who are new to Bitcoin, I think, you know, today's show is is really focused, ideally, on people who are new to the space. And uh, let's let's dig into that a little bit. Let's let's start talking about, um, I think we can start it out by maybe getting from Stefan. What would be, like, the top three things you think it would be important for a new person to know and then we can kind of go around and get the same thoughts from tomer and maybe peter and really anybody else who wants to go good guy yeah sure so i think there's a few obviously key resources that are important i think getting motivated and understanding like having a good sense of what bitcoin is matters and so getting i think the right jumping off point matters obviously stacking stats and you know accumulating some stats is is important not your keys is an important thing but you know for example reading for uh, as an example the bullish case for bitcoin by vj boyapati right so that's i think that's a good example of a short intro long essay or booklet length thing that you can read and it will give you some sense of the motivation here and some sense of the problem and the challenge. So I think that is an important starting point. Of course, our CTO, Jan Pritzker, co-founder of Swan, has written Inventing Bitcoin. That's also a fantastic starting point in terms of understanding some of the technicals of Bitcoin without getting into the actual, like having to read code or technical aspects of it. I think it's a fantastic intro book. So I often recommend that as a starter book. I think those are some really good places to start. Um, and then from there, and I mean, even harkening back to Greg Foss's comments earlier, right? This whole, this whole idea of skin in the game, put your money, put your money where your mouth is. I think it's a similar thing with Bitcoin. Like what you'll find is, you know, you can lecture to people all day, but until they have some actual skin in the game, what's the chances that they are going to really take it seriously and spend some time learning? Um, I think one other tip I would give for new people is actually use the technology, right? Send an on-chain transaction, right? Use a Bitcoin wallet, receive some Bitcoin, like withdraw some coin and spend practice spending some Bitcoin on-chain, even if it's to yourself into a, another wallet that you control. In some sense, it's moving money out of your left pocket into your right pocket, but actually using the thing then what happens is you'll start to ask yourself more questions because then you'll start thinking, oh, oh, hey, oh, wow, okay, I just sent a transaction. Oh, look, let me look up the transaction ID and let me look that up in a block explorer like mempool.space or, you know, blockstream.info uh, as some examples or ox.me or some of the kycp.org, like these different explorers out there. And they can give you some things to think about and understand. Oh, okay, what was the fee rate for this? Oh, what are these inputs and outputs? What's going on there? All of these aspects, and I understand at the start, that sounds like jargon. It sounds like engineering. It sounds like, well, it's like, you know, but it, what happens over time is as you get into Bitcoin, you just, you start to, once you have that right motivation, then you just, you can't stop going further down the rabbit hole. 
All right, Tomer, if you had to pick three things, what are the most important things you think a new person would, it would be valuable for a new person to understand about Bitcoin? Yeah, so uh, the first thing is use Bitcoin the way it was designed to be used and tune out all the rest. Uh, tune out people promising yield, people talking about altcoins, people talking about yield, people talking about staking, people talking about everything else. Just go back to the very beginning. Bitcoin was the granddaddy. It came out as software that you can run where you can take custody of these things called Bitcoin and, and you could send them and, and spend them. So start there. Start at the very beginning. And, and it's like learning to drive a car. <laughs> drive a car. Do, do it with a small amount of money. Uh, like as you would drive a car in a parking in an empty parking lot at, at the beginning. So use a small amount of money, practice. These, these are, I'm preaching the same things just with different words uh, than what Stefan said. So uh, get those, get those two things going and then let your curiosity lead you through the various aspects of the rabbit hole um, and, and many others. You may be a reader, you may be a tinkerer, you may be someone who prefers to learn from videos. You may be someone who likes to listen to spaces, all these sorts of things. There is no one right path, which is beautiful because <laughs> there's many right paths. There are also wrong paths that lead you to the right path. You, know, you, you may get wrecked or burned by trying to be greedy or something else. And those are lessons that, again, you may learn them at someone else's expense by watching someone else make mistakes, or you may have to learn these lessons personally. But I think that, I think that for me is the thing. Go back to basics practice with a safe amount and follow your curiosity. All right. As we move to uh, Peter and good guy, I want to rephrase the question. Why should somebody even care? Why, why, why should somebody care to learn about Bitcoin, use Bitcoin, et cetera? Why does it even matter? Peter, top three things. Um, I think the top three things for me are one, you need to understand that you've been infected by a fiat virus. All you know currently financially for most people is this fiat system. And this is outside of that. It's different. Um, I think that's really critical. Once you, once you say, okay, I've been infected by this. How can I, how can I frame this to look at this a little differently? Um, don't be afraid of the responsibility of, of, um, holding your own wealth, the the technology works, and you can trust this technology. This is this is one of the first times in human history where the technology, because of its its properties, um, allows for it to be trusted, and there's no third party uh, trust involved. And then the last thing is for me, once again, was. And it took this took a long time for me to do, but it's something that I think that um, I was encouraged to do and didn't really quite understand until later on in my journey. And that's try to create a visual of a flow chart of how the data moves around. This is just data moving around in a in a uh, uh, in a digital world, basically. And if you can kind of build yourself a flow chart of how this stuff is moving around it makes the it makes the psychology of the responsibility of holding your own wealth much uh, more palatable all right cool uh and thanks by the way to all of you guys stefan tomer 
Peter and good guy. And um, Stefan, we're going to go back to you in a minute and see if there's anything else major you want to cover. And then I would suggest we just start hitting questions, Q&A. I, I, I suspect we could do Q&A for another hour easy. Uh, so we'll, we'll look yeah, at I that. Yeah, I think Q&A is a great idea. Okay, awesome. Good guy. Same question to you. Why should anybody care? Why, why does learning about Bitcoin even matter? Uh, well, I'll put it simply, and, and I'll give you three reasons. Um, first off, uh, it's just like been life-changing for me and so many people around me. I've watched uh, many people around me uh, go from struggling to make rent payments to buying homes for their family um, and, and benefiting their extended family, spending all of their time now working in, in charitable ways. And, and it's amazing to see people making, making solutions to the problems in their own lives. Uh, and, and a lot of times Bitcoin has been a big part of that. Um, so, you know, you hold Bitcoin for any amount of time and, and that, that could be life changing for you. Uh, first off, life practice, DCA, dollar cost averaging. And it doesn't just have to be into Bitcoin necessarily. If you're investing into your your child benefits or your, your tax free savings accounts and, and your, your Bitcoin, um, I think dollar cost average is a life changing practice. If you, a lot of us get moments when we can save, but if we come up with regular intervals where we're, we hold ourselves accountable to investing, um, that compounds incredible over time. And uh, you end up with huge amounts of money later by investing small amounts of money regularly. And I think that's a very powerful practice. It's hard because cash flow can be waning, but I think it's important practice. Um, secondly is the sovereignty aspect. Uh, Bitcoin, why does it matter? It allows you to hold your money in a way that it can't be taken from you once you have that knowledge and that understanding. And a little bit of knowledge in the Bitcoin space provides you a ton of value to people outside of it. And so I would encourage everybody to get hardware wallets, something like a Nano Ledger um, or um, the Cold Card. These are really great ways to hold your, your Bitcoin in a way that's in your own possession and it's safe from all these things. We see like FTX and Three Arrows and all of these shit coins, all of these platforms devaluing. And then lastly, it's just a, a, a warning for people. Uh, we're seeing a lot of romance. Spencer and I work in this in the space, and we try to assist a lot of people with these types of things. And we're seeing a lot of romance scams and something specifically called pig butchering. And so I would encourage everybody who's new and in the space to learn about some of these common scams that used to happen in traditional sense with with money and, and you know, calling cards and, and, and gift cards. Now they, they try to convince people to basically invest money into websites. They get you to buy cryptocurrency, they get you to buy Bitcoin and send it to some kind of website and and, and your money's gone. And so uh, it's, it's often, these are romance scams. These are people that can come into your life or we have individuals here that have been dating people for as many as seven months. And you know, this 68 year old woman lost her life savings, $260,000 by investing into a website. She was unable to get it back. This person disappeared the day she did it. But I also deal with young people that are, are, are interacting with people on the internet in the same way. It's often pictures of their meals and it's lifestyle, making fun of small investments. And, and eventually they get you to send some money or cryptocurrency to a website. So instead of sending your money or leaving your money on any website, use really good on and off ramps like Swan. These are legitimate. These are safe. Buy your Bitcoin and put it in something like a hardware wallet, and you can avoid all that stuff together. So yeah, do dollar cost average. Uh, be sovereign, and uh, avoid the scams.
Awesome. I'm going to add one comment here and then we'll go back to Stefan in, in the vein of why anybody should care. And this is directed really to somebody who's really, really brand new trying to figure all this out. I would suggest that the reason you should care is that the most valuable asset any of us have is our time. Every second, every minute, every hour of the day that ticks by goes away. You will never see those again, ever. And what people do is we invest so much of our time running on this hamster wheel, trying to earn these little fiat pieces of paper. Well, they're not, I mean, to be fair, they're not paper anymore. They're mostly represented in digital format now. But the problem with these fiat units of currency is that they're always losing value because they keep making more and more and more of them. And, you know, whether you're young or old, if you're, if you're confused by this concept of running on this hamster wheel and you get up and you run, 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 run every day, and then you do it again the next day, you do it again the next day. And, and no matter how fast you run, no matter how hard you work, the prices of things are keep running away from you. If, if you feel like, you know, you're getting on the point where there's like, what is the point of all this? Why are we even doing it? You need to understand you have to figure out a way to leverage all of that. And I would suggest to you, and I mean, this is a deep discussion, so I'm not going to just, I, I can't explain it all just in two minutes. So I'm just going to give you the summary is, is that Bitcoin's going to allow you to leverage that in a way that the human race has never seen ever in the history of mankind. And we can, we can unpack that if you guys want, but I'm just going to encourage you to think about that for a second. If you want a way out, Bitcoin is the way. I will go to Stefan for any other general commentary and we'll start opening it up for questions. Go ahead, Stefan. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I think ultimately, as, as I've mentioned before, you have to understand the problem of the system we're in. And that system rewards people who are well positioned in terms of ability to be near the credit, near the printer, They their position in terms of access to politicians to have, let's say, favorable regulation, things like this. Of course, uh, that, that doesn't mean everyone should just give up. It means people should look at ways to, you know, I think it's important to sort of play good offense and good defense, right? Look for ways to earn more, like ethically, of course, not talking about like scamming or anything, but ethically earning more and then learning at way, looking at ways to save, like ways to save your wealth. And then so that's kind of how I see it, I see it as you come up with a thesis of what you think Bitcoin is. What does Bitcoin compete with? What does it actually replace? It replaces, it's a it's a replacement for central banking or for fiat fractional reserves systems. That's what it replaces. So that's how I would contextualize this. Tom, we're good. I've shared a link to a free copy of my of my book that tries to answer this question in a, even in just its first uh, essay, which is just a two minute read called "Why Bitcoin Exists." So, uh, the book "Why Bitcoin" is available for download for free download, and uh, and I've I've really tried to answer this by writing a book on it. But to summarize the first essay as quickly as possible, it's like the problem we have money that is broken. It's unreliable. It fails to serve all mankind, and its days are numbered. And Bitcoin fixes all of those things. So that's uh, that's as briefly as I can put why you should be interested in Bitcoin. Outstanding. Thanks, guys. Okay, before we go to Peter, um, I'm going to suggest to any of you who are in the audience, we're just going to open this thing up. We have on the stage today, Stefan Lavera, who is one of the best known podcasters in the entire industry. Uh, he's got 
I don't know how many hundreds of episodes now. Um, a very deep Stefan is a very, very smart guy. And the way he the way he creates his interviews and poses his questions, I promise you, you will learn tremendous things if you just go listen to his series of podcasts. He's an excellent resource to have up here to answer questions. We've got Tomer Strolight. He he is what I call the Bitcoin shaman. He's he's an OG in Bitcoin. He's in, he's one of the nicest <laughs> men I know, full of love, and uh, he has a great perspective on on Bitcoin. We've got good guy. He's probably one of the smartest security guys in the entire industry that I'm aware of. There may be others, and I'm I'm not you know I'm not trying to say you know he's the only one, but he's like really freaking smart. And then we've got Peter, also. Um, Peter's fairly new. <laughs> I mean, he's he's been in this thing for a little over a year, I want to say. But he's also, uh, interestingly enough, he's he's an incredibly fast learner, and he's in that kind of you know he's he's uh, he'll say it himself. He's he's a boomer, you know. So if you're older, you want to learn about Bitcoin, talk to this guy. He has some great uh, perspectives on all that. If you're in the audience, you want to come up and ask a question, just request to come up. We'll bring you up. We'll be kind. I promise. If you want to ask a question in text. You can do that in our Telegram group. That's t.me forward slash Cafe Bitcoin Club. Uh, let's roll. Peter, what do you got? Um, well, first of all, thank you for the nice comments to be put in the same uh, uh, to put in the same room with uh, the three uh, Tomer, Stefan, and Good Guy is um, uh, pretty amazing. And um, I am nowhere near any of their uh, at levels of expertise or, uh, or intelligence. So just, just to put that out there, I wanted to say that to add to what you were saying, Alex, um, uh, a little earlier, uh, you know, Natalie Smolensk, I believe is the, how do I pronounce her name? She said that, uh, you know, that the ultimate expression of liberty is the ability to opt out and Bitcoin is that. It is our ability to opt out of the fiat system, and it is incredibly powerful. The, the, our ability to exercise liberty is incredibly powerful on so many different levels, and I just wanted to, I just wanted to say that. And it's also, it's also really simple, right? Bitcoin is just a technology. Bitcoin is just code. Bitcoin is the same thing that makes the internet work. It's the same thing that lets you text message your family and friends. It's the same thing that lets you sign into your accounts in a way that's encrypted. It's, it's the combination of all these technologies before it, several protocols put together in a way that allows us to send and receive money digitally and store value on a blockchain, a forward-facing ledger that's decentralized, that's peer-to-peer, -peer, right? That's, that's consensus through the individuals, not through the entities. It's, it's a technology that allows us to do that. And it's, that's all it is. It's just protocol. But because it, it, it has that community, because it has those developers and because it has those quote unquote node operators, it's actually resilient to a lot of these things people talk about, like uh, the black swan events, right? If, if, if the entire world was to lose its power for six months, that wouldn't destroy Bitcoin because when power came back on, the node operators would just start back up at the, the last block that we finished. And that's, one of the really incredible parts of it, the same way that the internet would come back and phones would come back and all those other things would come back, Bitcoin would come back too because it's a technology that has a community behind it. Nothing more, nothing less. 
Yeah, it's funny. People ask, uh, who the hell's buying the Bitcoin? Like some people think Bitcoin's going to go down much, much further. And what they don't understand is the reason it's where it's at is because we all keep buying it. Um, all right. There's a stack there's a really, Bitcoin every day. Yeah, every day. There's a really great um, thread that Nat Brunel posted asking, like, what are the what are the top questions that you get? I'm going to be pulling some questions from this thread as well as we're starting to get questions in on the telegram. So first question, any one of you guys can take a stab at this. Um, you know, let me know which one you wants to try to answer it. But first question is, and this is the one that I get the most, why is it that governments uh, or anyone for that matter cannot stop Bitcoin? The short answer is it's just too decentralized. There's no easy choke point or place to go and stop the whole thing that it, we've seen in countries even where they did try to make moves against bitcoin in the regulated markets that just drove more and more people running to the peer-to-peer -peer markets and we saw that in places like nigeria pakistan and others uh, india to some extent as well um, i think fundamentally it's to understand that it places people in a really awkward spot right if they're trying to say i'm gonna bitcoin works so well that i'm gonna try to ban it it just puts it, it's in a really awkward place to sort of um, pretend that you are a free country, but at the same time try to ban people from owning what in most places around the world is regarded as a commodity. In certain countries or places, it's literally legal tender. But generally speaking, given it's considered a commodity, I believe it's very unlikely that you, we will see very uh, big concerted actions against Bitcoin anytime soon we may see regulation come and that may hinder some adoption in certain aspects it's not a you know i don't believe regulation is a good thing for bitcoin obviously i think it's anti-bitcoin but i don't believe it will kill bitcoin and fundamentally because of that because people can just use it peer-to-peer -peer, and that's again part of the message of why we try to teach bitcoin such that people are using it non-custodially in a self-sovereign way or you can you can say self-custody meaning you hold it instead of just leaving it on the platform so i think that's just fundamentally why it's very it's very difficult i you know i i'm not one of those people who say bitcoin is inevitable i think it requires work it requires people who are advocating and building and coding and reviewing and all of this to keep the system going but i think it's it's just so so difficult to stop in a in any real global sense I'll just say ahead, quickly, Tim. Bitcoin was okay, built on top of the peer-to-peer -peer protocol, um, and we've seen no government able to stop things like piracy or, or file distribution, regardless of how much they've tried. Um, because Bitcoin was built on top of technologies, again, to Stefan's point, that were based on peer-to-peer, -peer, um, that's where Bitcoin gets its strength and its resilience, its anti-fragility. Uh, it's built on tops of those communities that couldn't be censored, couldn't be stopped, couldn't be... Uh, toppled so again really quick chapter seven of my book that's available for free at the top of the, at the top of the nest called why nobody can stop bitcoin also a two-minute essay uh, it might as well be titled why nobody can stop dandelions uh the thing with bitcoin is everywhere it runs a perfect replica of it is made and it can run on the smallest of computers like raspberry pies in its full and as long as one of those com computers is operating anywhere in the world bitcoin is essentially operating bitcoin's energy requirements are flexible so if in parts of the world governments stop 
its energy being used to keep it progressing. That's okay. It'll it'll adjust its energy requirements, and it it makes this adjustment itself rather than letting people make this adjustment to it. So nobody can tamper with its uh, with its self regulating energy mecha- energy consumption mechanism. And so what you end up with is it, it's like shutting down a virus or like shutting down a weed. As long as it exists somewhere, it'll continue to flourish and and it'll spread as long as people want to receive it. I, I think the one difference, some of us don't want dandelions. Any of us who don't want Bitcoin don't have to run Bitcoin. But any of us who do want to run Bitcoin can run it uh, quite trivially. And that enforces the, decentralize, the decentralization and indestructibility of the network. You literally have to find every single person in the world running Bitcoin and not just stop them from doing it. You have to destroy the computer that they have it on to prevent them from starting it again. Um, and and the idea is out of the out of the box as well. So um, you can't you can't put it back in. And so that's uh, that's why you can't stop Bitcoin. Yeah. And importantly, if any of those computers that had a copy of it survived and then they turned the Internet back on and then that thing got turned back on, what would end up happening? It was just it would just repopulate the entire <laughs> across the whole world. Like it's the whole thing about you can't kill all the dandelions. I agree with that. Uh, Peter, go ahead. Um, I love the dandelion uh, analogy, Tomer. I, I really love visual analogies. And what I was going to say was in the fifth element, the movie, there's this evil thing out in the space somewhere. And every time it gets attacked, it just gets stronger. And it is exactly like Bitcoin. Every time Bitcoin gets attacked, state attacks, individual attacks, it doesn't matter. It just makes it stronger. It makes the network stronger. And Part of that, I think, is because of of Bitcoin, the Bitcoin ethos and how Bitcoiners are. Bitcoiners are constantly looking for cracks in the port protocol. They're constantly looking for bugs and backdoors, anything that they can that they would they invite people to attack it because they want to see if there is a vulnerability. And that is one of the differences between uh, the, the Bitcoin ethos and you know the fiat ethos the in in the fiat world they don't want they don't want you just to trust they don't want you to attack it they don't want to know what the holes are they want the holes for themselves for the uh, cantillion effect but with bitcoin it's exactly the opposite and i think it's really really important um for these attacks to continue to happen because the network just gets stronger can i can i Put something down on top on top of what you said, like th- this ability of Bitcoin to thrive when attacked. <laughs> I'm going to have fun. Chapter 13 of my book called Why Bitcoin is the World's Greatest Gladiator. Another short essay uh, talking about why Bitcoin thrives when, when it's attacked, why it gets stronger when it's attacked. Um, then suggesting it's actually the greatest gladiator the world has ever seen, because every one of these attacks that Bitcoin suffers, it takes place out in the open right like there's no private attack that takes place on bitcoin everything about bitcoin is public and available to be surveilled the whole time and each time bitcoin defeats one of these attacks and it has defeated every attack against it so far or it would be dead more and more people get to see how survivable bitcoin is so it suffered government attacks it suffered nation-state attacks it suffered attacks from developers on the inside and from corporations on the inside it survived all of these things essentially unscathed and so the more people who see it survive the more people have confidence in it the more money that they choose to store in it the more it attracts further attackers the more the more they prepare for the uh, higher level of attack and the stronger it gets uh, and so uh, once again <laughs> once again bitcoin is it is very phenomenal 
uh, entity that just keeps getting stronger, especially when it's attacked by virtue of being attacked rather than weaker. And think about how many things you know in life that, you know, I, I wish I could get stronger from being attacked. Sometimes I do. You know, there's that saying that which doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. I wish that were universally true. There's a bunch of things that didn't quite kill me, but <laughs> nearly broke me. You know, the funny thing about Bitcoin, though, is Bitcoin doesn't get tired. Like as human beings, you know, you can be attacked. And after a while, you're just like, uh, sometimes you need to just recharge from that. Bitcoin doesn't, doesn't get tired. I want to say welcome to Tao. Good morning. Uh, just jump in here, man, if you have stuff you want to add. Okay, so next I, question. We'll keep rolling. Um, yep, we can hear you. Good morning. Sorry. Hey, guys. So I did have a question, and it, it goes to the attacking thing. So do you guys think there will ever be a point in time, and I don't believe so, in the Western world where the laws will be so strict that they say if you deal with Bitcoin in any way or you store it or use it for transfer, that you will go to jail. And if not, then what do you think would be the, the, the strictest, strictest or harshest law being placed? I think we've seen it go on. I think the, the strictest thing is centralization and monopoly, monopoly, right? We see corporate interest. We see some of the, the publicly trading mining companies setting up, um, I guess you'd call them councils, and those councils are advising uh, government regulations in a way that I think something similar happened with Coinbase in New York um, when one of the regulators there made it very difficult for other operators in New York, essentially granting Coinbase exclusive rights, and then he took a lovely little position leaving government and working at Coinbase soon thereafter, <laughs> proving said regulation. Um, so I think that effect is going to be what we see personal interest affect the space and just the, the bars of entry for a lot of things. I think the, the, the worst case for a regular consumer is that um, you have to purchase your Bitcoin through centralized entities um, like uh, your local bank if you want to use it um, you know, uh, to take losses or different things of that nature inside of your traditional tax uh, structures. So I think, yeah, the worst case would be you have to hold, you have to buy it within certain en entities. And I don't think it'll be effective. But uh, the commercial interest is what really scares me specifically in America. is just raising those barriers for people and, and businesses. Well, a little bit of a rhetorical question, although I think it's worth you thinking about how is like, what else have you ever seen in the history of the United States, let alone in the history of the whole wide world, be effectively banned by governments? Uh, certainly not recreational drugs, certainly not weapons. Uh, and, and these are things that, argue, that arguably can harm in individuals. I don't see how Bitcoin harms individuals. It, it, it harms a state's ability to debase the currency at the expense of its citizenship. Which, which is a harder thing to justify. Uh, you have to tell a lot more lies about it than, than the lies you might have to make up about things like, like guns. So, I, so and the answer to the rhetorical question is governments have not really been successful at banning these things despite outlawing them uh, frequently. So uh, the other thing to think back to is it was once through an executive order of the President of the United States uh, ordered that everyone surrender their gold 
uh, not everybody did, of course, and those who did, unfortunately, saw their <laughs> the money that they were given in exchange for it devalued substantially immediately, and uh, and, and then even more substantially gradually. So we won't let that we won't get fooled again. I think is the statement that Bitcoiners won't let won't get fooled by what uh, Executive Order sixty one hundred two fooled a lot of people with. Um, and so it's just, it's really hard. Like, remember the, the, the government needs you to obey their rules and people, many people obey whatever rules, but many people question them as well. And uh, I mean, the whole United States of America is built on the premise of people saying, well, we're not so sure those rules of King George's make sense for us. So we're gonna opt out and we're prepared to opt out and fight for it. You know, we're prepared to die on this hill, I think is the expression. Yeah, I think that's a fair characterization. Like, uh, there are so many things that people, you know, there's a difference between passing a law and a regulation and being able to enforce it. First of all, there's a math equation there of resources. A lot of people assume that the state has endless resources. Well, they have a, they have a money printer, but the thing is, is that if they if they go to that degree of endless resources, that just weakens their own purchasing power over time. Is the first part. So the math equation may or may not work out. The second part is, is that people don't always follow those rules. Um, and I guess it just comes down to the question of how did draconian does, does it get? And at the end of the day, we're talking about people's freedom right now. I look at it as freedom. Like, um, I, I'm just going to speak for myself. And there's probably a lot of others like me that this idea of dying on this hill, 100%, you know, like if they, tomorrow passed a law that says, you know, it's, it's illegal and the penalty is death. Um, some people are going to, are going to say, Alex, you're full of shit. But my, my, my opinion on that is bring it, uh, Peter, go. So, uh, boomer alert. Um, I do watch CNBC. That's usually what I have on in the morning. And it was interesting because, uh, they were interviewing a Senator this morning because of the FTX debacle and the regulations that are going to come down regarding uh, these unregulated securities, which Bitcoin is not. And it was interesting because one of the questions was, you know, are we going to make this? There's 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 rumblings in the Senate of making uh, cryptocurrencies illegal. And this was not uh, to me or or any other person that was uh, that, that I know of as being pro Bitcoin. But this uh, this senator said that, uh, no, we, we realize that this doesn't work. And I think that the our 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 uh, our politicians, uh, our lawmakers are starting to wake up to the fact that they are not able to control this thing and that they're going to have to get on the bandwagon. And that bandwagon is starting with why would we send this money making uh, entity, this tax revenue, this this entity that is uh, greener than uh, that, that will green our energy. Um, why are we sending this out of the nation? Because that's all that's going to happen to it. If we ban it, it's just going to go somewhere else. And I think they're starting to wake up to that. Yeah, but yeah, but we've seen that happen time and time again in countries, and America is number one at arguing over things for many many years at a time, um, while corporate interest takes the bait. So I think um, I think the likelihood is the same way we saw a lot of invested interest leave China, and then move to places like Iran, and then 
as the government there strapped down. We saw a lot of that invested interest move. I think miners that don't want to be OFAC compliant or want to rely on government subsidies will likely um, uh, move abroad as well. I think we're seeing a lot of businesses that were intending to operate in America uh, while having offices here and now branching out and setting up offices abroad. I think that's likely to continue as the world opens up, becomes more international with, with Bitcoin. I think we'll see a lot of in invested interest leave America and find less less regulatory and less red areas with less red tape. Let's just say that, you know, the fact that we see 10% of the Bitcoin mining in Canada overall on average right now is just insane. Something like 40% of the hash rates likely being accomplished in, in America, perhaps even more. Um, you know, it's interesting. It's interesting. Good guy that, that you're, that you're referring to, you know, this idea that, We've had centralization of money with uh, with U.S. dollar uh, hegemony, and now we are talking about globalization of money. And while at the same time the world economy, which has been globalized, is now uh, moving towards uh, getting rid of a lot of that globalization, it, it's quite interesting. It'll it'll benefit the the users, right? Um, and I think it benefits competition, so it'll benefit citizens. Um, we'll, we'll see the the ethics and morals and ideologies spread wider of, of, of good actions, of game theory, of mutual benefit through things like Bitcoin. Um, so I think it'll force governments into better actions for sure. Can I just jump in with one thing to put the co question in context? I think it's a great question you asked, Cal. Like, what's the worst that could happen? But it needs to be put in context of what's most likely to happen. And this notion... <laughs> Take Alex's worst case example. The government says we will kill you if you own Bitcoin. That, that's really unlikely to happen. Um, and even outlawing of Bitcoin is really unlikely to happen because there's already all sorts of corporations domiciled in the United States of America that custody Bitcoin for people, that are a closed-end fund that holds Bitcoin for people. There's licensed businesses approved to sell Bitcoin to people. It's not like this is on the ver and it's a non-violent, non-harmful thing to people. So it's it's unlikely that it's going to be outlawed. It's going to obviously be controversial because it's something that the government can't tightly control. And so it's at the edges of what it can't tightly control that the government's going to be concerned about what people might do outside of the control of the government. And there's actually a there's a reasonable debate to be had there. I, many of us over here think that we know we know the answer and it's that the government shouldn't get involved in anything. But that's not to say that there isn't a decent debate uh, to be to be had about it. But I just want to set the question, you know, as people are listening, like, oh, my God, if I'm going to buy Bitcoin, you know, do I face jail time or execution or some other kind of criminal? It's like there's none of that happening. There's none of it really being proposed as well. There's a couple of there's always a couple of people grandstanding in the Senate trying to make various things um, illegal, but I don't think there's actually anyone saying that possession of Bitcoin, there's no law being put forward or drafted suggesting that it's a crime to hold Bitcoin. So I just really want to put it in context. Yeah, uh, that's, I'm glad you did that because I didn't want to scare people. <laughs> like the, the chance, you know, you got to assign probabilities to things. Like what is the actual probability? If you look at the direction that things are actually going, it's a very good point. Like all of the institutions are lining up behind Bitcoin, not against it. Like how many banks 
how many major financial institutions just in the year 2022 came out and said that they're going to be supporting or facilitating Bitcoin in some way or another. And the, the list is long. So yeah, yeah like there's a the tremendous the amount of energy. The largest investment firm in the United States of America is making Bitcoin available to, to their The U.S. Treasury has sold Bitcoin how many times now? Let's just, uh, come on guys, how, how many oh, times? Is that's right, they, they actually sell it back to Americans, right? So right. If it's a crime to own at a, it. At a pretty good it, price, too. But Yeah, so... I think, you know, it's a, it's a topic because I think people are afraid of the government in large, you know, a lot of people are afraid of what the government might do. You know, there's, that's where most, I find most of the objections come from, um, sort of a, I don't know if statist mentality is the right way to, but it's just people who are afraid of what, what the government might do. I, I find a lot of objections come from that vector. But the, the CBDCs, the government monitoring, the, monitoring, the, the master balance net, people are, are getting more familiar with all the time. Oracle now coming on board to take all of the data sets um, a bit publicly available and turn those into readily searchable databases for your local police officers to, to investigate you thoroughly at the click of a button. All these types of things are, are concerning, and they're, they're moving faster all the time. And in some places, they're already mandated. And in places like here in the U.S., they're already running trials for these systems. Or these universities are heavily involved. You look at the Hamilton Project over at MIT. I think it's worth looking into for most people. It's related to the uh, American CBDCs. Um, they've already started a trial here. With okay, so so good guy. Let's let's move more in the vein of scaring the crap out of people into well, why is Bitcoin is the solution against that stuff? Well, and that's where the adversarial nature of Bitcoin comes up with that stuff is. It's the polar opposite of CBDCs. It's it's the pseudo-anonymous money that you have full sovereignty over, that you can hold for in infinite amounts of times, generationally, as a store of value. Whereas the CBDCs will be given to you. They will be monitored. They will be limited by time. They will have expirations on them. They will have use cases. So it's, it's going to be... It's, it's going to be what they don't want us to use. And I think the CBDCs will be heavily subsidized. You know, we'll all get quote unquote free money to fall into that system. The smart people to the comments that were made earlier will use Bitcoin to opt out of that system. Or take the money they give, they give you and buy Bitcoin. That's our figure out. How <laughs> I, saw, I saw a tweet the other day that was really great and it obviously resonated with people because at the end of it, he said the Bitcoin or eat the bugs. <laughs> Let's let's do announcements really quick, and um, then we'll keep rolling here. You're listening to Cafe Bitcoin. Good morning and welcome. If you've never been here before, we do talk about Bitcoin. Today, we're doing a beginner Q&A, the place for your morning news, preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in the industry. This is also a podcast up on Fountain, Spotify, and Apple. You can throw myself or Swan a follow to be notified of when those drop later on today, starting at 11, p 11 a.m., excuse me, Pacific time, 2 p.m. Eastern, there's going to be a live spaces with Brady Swenson in the audience, Sam Callahan, and Alex Gladstein. That's going to be awesome. So look forward to that. Uh, this holiday season, you can give gifts of Bitcoin to your loved ones and your friends. People are trying to orange pill. If they're just curious about it, you can send them a gift through Swan. Swan.com slash gifts, I believe, is the URL to do that. Also, Swan's got an app. If you want to, please go download, install, and rate that thing. Let us know what you think. Um, it's awesome because there's no shit coins on it, in my personal opinion. Uh, let's keep rolling. Tomer, go ahead. 
a very short point and then and then something about this afternoon's Twitter spaces. So you you hear the expression programmable money and someone once said it about Bitcoin. Many people said Bitcoin is programmable money. And now you hear about central bank digital currencies and you hear programmable money. What's the difference? Uh, the difference is Bitcoin is money that's programmable by you for your purposes to the extent that it's programmable. CBDC is money that's not programmable by you, but is programmable by the government. So they can make it disappear from your wallet. They can make it expire. They can make it not per not able to purchase certain certain goods. Bitcoin, to the extent that it's programmable for you, is like you can spend it however you want. You can put whatever constraints you want on it on it being spent. So it's it's a difference of who's in who's in charge it makes a really big difference. Uh, the other point I want to make is if you can get that uh, afternoon thing with Brady, Sam, and um, and Alex, I'm sure it's going to be amazing. Uh, they, they've got really awesome topics on there, which are going to talk about freedom. I'm sure. So. Uh, if you can make time for it, do. I unfortunately can't, but I'll be listening to the replay. All right, let's keep rolling with the questions. We have up here Chad D. Wagner. Good morning. Hey, good morning, everybody. Um, this is kind of a, a newbie question. Um, I've been working on getting my coins off the exchanges and getting it into some hardware wallets. Uh, the question I've been kind of struggling with is, let's say I'm using the Moon Wallet and for some reason, Moon goes out of business or is taken off the App Store, something like that. So am I able to take my keys and apply those to a different app or a different wallet and recover those funds? Or how does that work? Yes. Yes. So the short answer is Moon Wallet, even if Moon were to disappear tomorrow, there is a recovery tool and that's publicly available on their GitHub. Now, Moon is a special case, just to be clear. So for listeners out there, most Bitcoin wallets are operating on what's known as a typical uh, seed words or recovery phrase, 12 or 24 words basis. That's what most wallets are working on. Moon is a special case because they use a descriptor wallet. Basically, it's a bit of a technical term, but they use a setup where it requires a little bit of a special way to recover if Moon were to go down. So what you would need is your uh, written down backup and also the recovery kit. So in that in the middle button on the bottom on, on your Moon wallet, you'll see a, a tab called security. You click that. In that backup, you'll see there's a three-step process. The first step is the username and password, but you don't have to do that. Like this, In this case, we're talking about if Moon wallet disappeared. And so that second and third step, that second step is you're writing down um, kind of like a passcode for a descriptor. And then that third piece is a recovery kit PDF. You would have to combine those two in order to be able to recover your coins. Now, Moon Wallet have a recovery tool that you can run. And what you would do is you would create another wallet, generate a receive address, then run this Moon Wallet recovery process and input as part of that the address that you want to receive all of your Moon Wallet coins into. I know it sounds a little bit complicated, but what we're talking about here is if Moon Wallet were to totally disappear. The other case is if, let's say, you just lost this phone and you needed to recover it into another phone, then it's a simpler process. You could just basically use Moon and import an existing wallet. Does that, are you following me there? Absolutely, yeah. So that would go for any of the apps or, or hardware wallets. As long as we have our keys, we can recover it somehow. Correct. correct? But yeah, just just note there's there's a difference in Moon and the other, and most of the typical other wallets. 
that that's just a key difference just for you to understand. So, so Chad, one of the important things I think to understand here is that when you're creating a wallet on a phone, you're using a persistently connected internet device. So I would always consider apps that you make on a desktop, on a website, in a browser, or on a phone, what we call a hot wallet. And there's all sorts of terms we hear industry use, warm wallets and secure wallets and all sorts of funny things. But if it's made on a website, in a plugin, in a browser, on your desktop, or in a phone, it's a hot wallet. And so that, what that means is it's potential... There's potential that your private keys, when you're created those 24 words, that information might have been accessed by no-click malware that we know now exists, like Pegasus from the NSO group and all these other types of persistent issues, zero days that exist in a lot of the browsers right now, these, these, these attack surfaces that people are using to take that private information from people's plugins. So if you're looking to store your Bitcoin for a long period of time, I would always, always always encourage people to learn about and use something like a nano ledger or a cold card. These are physical devices that have something called a secure enclave. They have a special chip that does that, that 24 word creation offline um, and then hashes that information and sends it back out to the computer. So these are a superior way of doing this. We used to have to sync the Bitcoin blockchain up and then disconnect from the internet and create the wallets. And we had hundreds of different addresses. The benefit of using that stick is you can make hundreds of different Bitcoin addresses and they can all be backed up by those same 24 words in a really easy to use standardized way that uh, you could put in any other hardware wallet. So, And lastly, awesome. I would encourage people not to digitize their, their 24 words, their 12 words. Anytime you can keep those things in written format, you can etch them into things like metal for you know redundancy from floods and fire. I think that's a much safer way. I would never store those things in a cloud or take photos of those things or print those things off again because that takes a cold wallet created in an offline situation and it introduces online or potentially online devices to it. So even if your wi your printer's not connected to the, the Wi-Fi network, right, I would be wary of, of using that due to exploits and things like that. So right, writing these things down by hand and keeping them in, in multiple safe, redundant places I think is really important too. Uh, I don't awesome. like I don't the moon wallet's great as a as a mobile wallet like for taking money around but I wouldn't leave money in it as a store value. Yes, thank you. I've I've been uh experimenting with the Sparrow uh on the computer side and then I got the cold card. So I've just been playing around with everything and really enjoying it. Very yeah, cool. Yeah, that's great. And so yeah, so definitely once you're ready, get the um cold card set up and what you can do is just as an example, test it out with a small amount and then Practice, like, let's, as an example, spin up your cold card, initialize it, and then, you know, if you can, uh, if you're able to do the micro SD card with Sparrow Wallet or Spectre, then that's great. If not, if you're a beginner, just, just plug it in and you can use it just like that. And then you can practice sending a small amount of Bitcoin and just, you can even practice like wiping the seed out of the cold card and then recovering your 12 or 24 words by using the import existing feature on your cold card. And so that can sort of help you prove it to yourself that, ah, oh, wow, yes, with these 12 or 24 words, I can actually recover my coins. Uh, but if you want to do that, just obviously practice with a small amount, like $20, $50, something small, and then see, prove it to yourself in that way. Oh, wow, this same 12 words, it deterministically creates that same wallet. Does that make sense? Yeah, I appreciate the answers, guys. Thanks so much. Hey, hey one, other thing, 
one, one other thing real quick. Um, the documentation that Sparrow has in particular with cold card is, this is from a, <clears throat> excuse me, this is again from a boomer perspective. It is super easy to follow and um, it's almost conversational and step-by-step -step and it was really easy for me to follow the, the, uh, the Sparrow documentation when it came to integrating uh, it with the cold card and spinning up the cold card, super easy. Can I make one small fun fact addition to this? Um, it, you're, you're not storing your Bitcoin in your hard, hardware wallet. Your Bitcoin are safely stored in every copy of the blockchain everywhere in the world. I've got a couple of backups for you over here. Um, what, you're, what you're able to store is the private keys that nobody can recreate that allow you to spend, that allow only the holder of the private key to spend the Bitcoin according to its rules. Uh, and what makes this kind of unique uh, versus any other form of property that ever existed before is not only can you take custody of it, but you can back it up. So like if you were a gold investor and you took custody of some gold, you'd have to put it in some location. And if that location became inaccessible to you, you can't get at that gold. And it can only be in one location. You can put half of it one place, half the other, but you lose half of it if that location disappears. The fact that you can back up your keys because they're just information means that you can have this self-custody asset it's yours. It's not the bank's. It's yours. And if you lose access to one location, you can recover it from another from another location or or multiple locations. And that's one of the most extraordinary aspects of, of Bitcoin. So I it, and it's a fun fact. So I thought I'd add it because it's it's related to this question. Uh, now that you're working on taking self custody, the beauty of it is you can back it up. You want to make sure nobody else gets their hands on any of your backups. Uh, but that's something you'll figure out uh, what works best for you over time. All right, let's keep rolling here. Uh, Dallas, good morning. Do you have a beginner question? Um, no beginner question. I think you guys are hitting hitting the nail on the head with uh, cold storage and laying that out for people. Um, enjoying the convo. Got a you know a couple of things I could introduce, but if you want to keep it beginner stuff, I can you know wait and see if there's any other questions. Yeah, we're gonna stay at the beginner level. It's whole point right now. So thank you for coming up. Next is gonna be Ghost. Good morning. Do you have a beginner question? Hey, Alex, thanks. Um, one question I had when I was orange killing a friend that I didn't really know how to answer, um, maybe you guys could help me out, is, is there a risk of, you know, these, these wallets from, you know, these companies, Ledger, Trezor, Cold Card, what have you, is there a risk that this could be just one giant honeypot? Like, for instance, I, I think, I believe Ledger's in France, right? Like, is there a risk that, these companies could have everybody's private keys since, you know, I guess you wouldn't know for certain. And, and if this is a risk um, that they could just, you know, rug everybody at one point, um, would it make sense to just, you know, have your stack with, uh, you know, multiple different wallets kind of spread it out, you know, maybe have some in cold card or maybe, you know, ledger or, you know, what have you, but something along those lines. Yeah. So the short answer, might... yeah. So the short answer, I mean, I don't want to scare people, but I guess, Theoretically, yes, it is. But like, I think it's extremely unlikely. But of course, the way to ver to uh, help defend against that, there are various ways. The main way people talk about is multi-signature, meaning you use multiple devices. That's one way. Another way people talk about is to use a passphrase, which is an additional element that you add. Uh, but what I would say is, 
it's important that people don't get scared to get started, right? Like it's important that you just get started with self-custody and then slowly advance from there. I don't want to scare people and say, oh, look, like, yeah, it's, I mean, if you're talking about what's theoretically possible, yes, it's theoretically possible that there's some kind of really long retirement attack and somebody has pwned the keys from the start and that you thought you were generating an actually random private key, but actually, or an actually random seed, but you weren't. But uh, at the same time, I think it's more important to get started because remember, there are bigger risks to everybody. I'll give you a quick example. So I saw this just recently. Adam Back tweeted out just recently, I think it was today or earlier yesterday, that in the time in Mt. Gox in 2013 had already gone fractional, but people didn't know. And so there were people who later got wrecked on Mt. Gox because they did not self-custody and the, the exchange was fractional. So I think what's important is to contextualize the risks and understand what's the more likely risk. Because right now, the hackers are going for the more low-hanging fruit, right? They're doing things like phishing attacks. They're doing things like romance scams, as Good Guy was saying. So it's important to understand and contextualize the risks and take them one at a time. So that's why the typical pathway is, you know, start with a phone wallet on a small amount, then get a hardware wallet, then think about, okay, am I going to look at more advanced techniques using things like generating my own seed using dice rolls, or am I going to use a passphrase? Am I going to use multi-signature? And I think the let's call it the longer term answer for most people. If you have a high net worth, I think is probably going to be multi-signature, but uh, th those are a few uh, high level tips that yeah, I would. As the, as the guy who literally hacks the wallets here on stage, physically breaks into them for a living. Um, there's two ways to go about it. You go open source, which is great. If you trust the open source community that you're relying on, which is often like 15 guys on GitHub. For a particular project so maybe don't trust 15 random people you don't know uh, but open source is usually good at large but when we talk about companies like ledger these are these companies are audited by some of the largest security experts in the space and if you have a large invested interest and, and you want to you can sign an uh, um, uh, uh, basically a, uh, an NDA and you can audit with good reason uh, the code base as well it's uh, the people that have audited, I trust. Um, physically speaking, it's, it's it's more superior. Things like the cold card and the ledger are, are far superior to things like the treasures in the way that they can be physically accessed. And so I, I, I like the ledger for most people, and I encourage them just to order it on Amazon. I imagine most people up here would hate that. But uh, I would just say this. Don't overcomplicate things. Um, having multiple hardware wallets, using these different techniques, uh, I think it's great as a hobby to engage in as, a, as an understanding. But when you're talking about generational wealth, uh, you don't want to screw that up. And these are new systems. This is new to us. This is new to you. This is going to be new to your family if something unexpected happens. And after having helped three different families with unexpected deaths in the space, um, I, would, I would just cr have cringed if people had used any of those techniques. Thank God in all these situations, these people used 24 words and kept them in a place that their family was able to retrieve later with help. So, um, well, don't one simple, things. one simple way to get past the, uh, the idea that it might be the, all of it might be a honeypot is just to use multi-sig. You could, you could use a multi-sig setup to get around all that. So I'm going to leave it at that. That's a little more yeah. advanced. But yeah, let's, I mean, let's, one thing I would just add is I do want to, I, I mean, I do want to say something to agree there with good guy. Like it, it's it, multi-sig is one of those things that you have to, 
you really you have to really know what you're doing so it's one of those as my friend nvk says if you have to ask it's not for you <laughs> yet um and so you know that's that's where i think it's important to just get started with it with a with a decent hardware wallet like a cold card or, or like the ledger devices um rather than getting to you know paranoid about a specific risk when there are much worse risks out there All right, I hope that answered the question. We're going to keep rolling. Ghost, you good? All good, thanks. All right. Hey, Alex, uh, can I just add one thing? Sure. So you don't have to use a a uh, um, a hardware device at all. If you're just if you're not planning on transacting your your Bitcoin, you can get a seed phrase and then throw the hardware device away. Just keep your seed phrase. You don't really have to interact with it at all so it and it is exponentially more secure to get it off of an exchange in any way than it is to keep it on the exchange you lose some redundancy right if you if your words were burned but you still had your stick for example so i yeah if you're gonna if you're gonna get rid of your hardware device just make sure you've got redundant copies and separate physical locations of those 24 words in case of a break-in fire uh flood things like that so what i would also add to that is that uh, if you if you want to do that even if you don't want to transact um you can't uh, you won't be able to check your balances so maybe they, you know create a watch oh no you can yeah so you just use your public receiving address exactly, right so you can exactly. get your utxo um so yeah you can derive that information actually swan has a feature that can derive those addresses from a seed phrase like that um, in a way that you don't have to get those those public receiving addresses regularly so that they can send Bitcoin to your your wallet with a new address every time. Um, and that's that's a pretty cool example of ways that people have used that. And I, I completely agree with you that there was a time when that was the case, but we've we've added some upgrades and some additional stuff that's allowed uh, companies and individuals to do that now. Absolutely. We, personally, we just make QR codes and we print off the receiving addresses with QR codes for our long-term storage, yeah. Great. All right, let's keep going. Uh, next is Wonks. Good morning. Do you have a beginner question? Yeah, good morning, Alex. Good morning, everyone. Good conversation here. Uh, had a question. I don't know how much of a beginner level it is, but it's kind of something I'm thinking about. Um, what, how important is it when you back up your, you know, you have your seed phrase, your backup words, how important is it to know the derivation path from the wallet you set up? How significant is that? So I think for most wallets you're using, it will be on these like well-known derivation pathways. But uh, like if you, if you're just using, if you've just generated like, I don't know how much you want to dox here, but are you generating this out of one of the well-known hardware wallets or one of the well-known software, um, you know, devices? Or what's the? Are you able to share that or no? Yeah. So I actually I have mine. I have mine. Uh, I have my derivation path already. I have all my stuff like uh, in order. I'm just asking as a general question, like how significant is that for like a new user to actually have to account for that as well? If the company's still in business, it doesn't matter much. And that information will be readily available, right? If you Google what did this particular wallet's derivation be at that time, it's likely that information will be available. But I think where it complicates things is in your family planning. 
So if heaven forbid there's an emergency and you need an extended loved one to access those funds, um, and that information isn't readily available, they might have to trust on other people, which might not be trusting. So I would I would always include derivation if able. And if you don't have it, it's not really important necessarily unless you're using one of these really unique wallets. Um, but I would always write that down on that piece of paper in the top right corner, etch it on the uh, the back of the metal or something of that nature. Just have it included uh, because a lot of us will hold this Bitcoin for incredibly long periods of times. And we see in a lot of businesses come and go in the space. Um, and they're derivative. Yeah, interesting. Sorry, an interesting side there is walletsrecovery.org. So again, this is maybe getting beyond the beyond, beyond the beginner level. So look, just the beginner level answer is if you're using a standard hardware wallet or a, like a standard setup, you you don't really have to think about this. Your 12 or 24 words is basically going to be enough for you. I want to add something else that's probably important that for new people to know is, is that those those 12 or 24 words basically is the access to your Bitcoin. You need to protect that. That's a physical security issue. Uh, if, if someone were to get into your home and get a hold of those 12 or 24 words, they could fire up a wallet using those and sweep your Bitcoin. You might go look, you know, at some point, hey, how's my Bitcoin doing? It'll be gone. Like the physical security aspect is also very important. That's also the reason that you can use that sort of as a backup to reaccess your Bitcoin at a later time in the future. And it is also the reason that you could send Bitcoin to a wallet, for example, get the 12 or 24 words. If the wallet is destroyed or lost or even intentionally destroyed and you wanted to walk across a border to another country with those 12 or 24 words in your head memorized, you could do that and then fire up another wallet on the other side and get your Bitcoin again. By the way, this is the first time in the history of mankind that this is ever anything like this has ever been possible. You know, my my family came from fled to Taiwan originally from um, you know the communists taking over in China. They were basically putting a bullet in the in the head of anybody on the other team, and and they, my grandma, she she had gems sewed into her dress. Um, so that they had something of wealth on the other side so that they, they could start over. And you, you can, you can, <laughs> there are people who can today flee, um, you know, dangerous regimes with, with value stored in their brain. It's amazing. It's never, never been possible before. Thanks for coming up, Wonks. Go ahead, Tomer, and then we'll keep rolling. No, I, I didn't know that was, that the Taiwan story was your story too. Um, Mimesis Capital, um, Asked asked me to write uh, Bitcoin is generational wealth because uh, its founder went Louis Liu went through the same thing. His families had to flee to Taiwan and had all their fortune taken. And so he's a big believer in Bitcoin now. Um, and so we ended up making a short movie, Bitcoin is generational wealth, about how Bitcoin changes the game for being able to preserve your wealth across generations in the face of monetary debasement and totalitarianism. Swan Studios big production 15 minute movie watch it if you can awesome let's keep rolling good morning zach sats do you have a beginner question um it was somewhat answered between wonks and stefan but it was around derivation paths because i'd never really heard much about that and recently a friend was like saying he stored that along with his seed phrase and then i was worried i was maybe missing a step all right Good stuff. While we're waiting for others to come up, we'll hit Peter. I have another question um, that's super common that, that anybody can answer if you like. Peter, go ahead. Thanks for coming, Zach. 
I just wanted to make a comment that I love the fact that beginner questions have moved to the uh, derivation path level. <laughs> There's a spectrum. <laughs> that's all good. I, I couldn't oh, that's answer a good any joke, of those Alex. questions. I like, I like the spectrum joke. <laughs> that was unintentional. Uh, okay. Uh, I'm one... sure it was in Bitcoin too, but alas. <laughs> one, one thing that comes up a lot, and this is for people trying to understand Bitcoin as, as to like, this comes back to very, very basic. Like why? Like this doesn't even make sense to me. I, I hear this a lot, actually. Um, explain perhaps Stefan or Tomer. Um, it's not backed by anything. What do you mean? I mean, explain it. Why should I use Bitcoin if it's not backed by anything? So the fundamental answer, now I know some people will go down the incorrect pathway and say, oh, it's backed by energy. It's not. If something's backed by, it generally means you can redeem it. Like there's no central place you can take your Bitcoin and redeem it for energy, right? The, it, you know, to be backed by means you could take that token or thing and redeem it, for example, for gold. But the reality is you have to ask that question, well, then what's the gold backed by? What's this other thing? What You, you could keep asking that question and eventually you hit you hit ground, you hit the rock solid, uh, you know, that bottom where you have to actually think, what is the subjective value of the thing? Why do people hold this thing? And this is a very deep question. It gets to why do we hold money? It's about reducing our future uncertainty. So. I know it may not be a satisfying answer, but fundamentally, all value is subjectively perceived, as in you, you, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And so it's always going to be like that. And so you just have to think about more, you have to think more from the frame of what is a good money? Why is the most, why is Bitcoin a better money? I think that's the key way to approach or think about that question. And so the way to think about Bitcoin is more like it's a it's this scarce, rivalrous digital commodity. You can think of it like that. I, I, I agree with what Stefan said, but I also think it's fair to give the other perspective. When people ask what's it backed by, they, they may be coming from two, two avenues, right? Historically, when people said the US dollar is backed by something, they've either said exactly what, what Stefan is pointing out, that it was backed by gold, which meant you could redeem it for gold, or they said it's backed by the full faith and forth of the force of the U.S. government, which meant if you don't accept it uh, on faith, the full force of the U.S. military <laughs> would attack you. Uh, but what Bitcoin is backed by in the context of what keeps it going, there's a lot. There's a lot there, and fundamentally, it's kind of like the rock bottom things of the universe. It is. It's energy and the laws of math, which are. Like physics and the laws of math, which are inviolable. So it, it's not backed by a promise of a government. It's backed by provable mathematical formula. Um, and that's to the extent, like, you can, can you redeem it for a proven mathematical formula? No, the mathematical formula is open source and free. So it's not backed in the sense that it's redeemable for, it, for anything. But the fact that you can spend it without anybody's permission is supported by the laws of math and physics, which are inviolable and available to you. The simple, you know, the, the the response that I've heard that is the simplest and the the most impactful was was by Mark Moss, and his response to that question is, "Well, what's backing gold?" And just let them think about that for a minute, because the truth is, well, there's nothing backing gold. It's base layer money, and uh, without getting too deep into the weeds, it's just it's just a matter of what 
what Stefan said as well. It's like whatever we think it is. Isn't whatever, it, whatever. Is it a time that, that backs gold and, and Bitcoin is a time chain? No. No, I don't think that's it at all. I, I think that gold is just at this point becomes so engraved in our subconscious as human beings that it that it it's something of value. But it's a, it's a it's also a, a, a it's just a it's just a judgment call. It's just a it's a it's a, it's completely subjective. If you think of all forms of money going back all the way to the beginning, you know you've got you've got like rye stones, the Isle of Yap. You've got Feathers, glass beads, shells, sticks. People have used sticks as money. I'm not making this up. What's the common denominator with all these things? Humans agreed. That's it. That's all that is required. Humans have agreed. If, yeah. if myself, go ahead, Tomer. Uh, I have a question that I got from DM about um, about what's going on with mining. So if if we're ready to move on, I, I can read the question and and offer my answer and let others but sure I, I let's go read the question okay. all right the question states uh could you please talk about when bitcoin is being mined what calculations is the computer doing or solving this is a topic i still don't fully understand also once all bitcoin are mined could you explain how new blocks will be formed like those people running nodes are they still solving math equations and getting paid in bitcoin so i've just been asked this question from multiple potential bitcoin investors and i have a hard time explaining okay so there's two questions in there so did you want to say something else? Oh, I was or, just going to say, or, yeah, the block creation uh, aspect is pretty simple. Um, normally mining uh, miners or mining pools take the transactions with the most transaction fees and put those into a block and they attempt to mine that. And that gets committed to the blockchain. So uh, that's the, the miners and the mining pools, not necessarily the node operators that are doing the, the block creation and, and the block mining earning said subsidy. I, I think the question, uh, I, I've actually interacted with this individual before, so I think the complexity of what he's getting at is um, what what is the problem that's being solved? And the the easiest way I can do this, although this is not the easiest thing to say, is they, as good as good guy said, they take all of these transactions, which are strings of text, that, and they put them together in an order that makes sense, that, that complies with Bitcoin's rules. It can't be more than one megabyte of space, excluding the, the signatures. Um, and so it, it has to abide by the rules. The transactions all have to be valid. They can't, double, they can't spend coins that don't exist or that have already been spent. And so they end up with a long string of text and they run it through this algorithm called SHA-256 twice, um, which, which outputs a 256 bit string. So that's a string that's 256 characters long that contains only ones and zeros. And, and they also get to have to put some additional data, including some number of their choosing, a number used once, which is called a nonce. And when, and when you run it through that algorithm, anyone who runs the same string through the same algorithm will see the same output. Uh, and there's about a 50-50 chance uh, that any one of the numbers will be a zero or a one. Um, and so that you can't know until you've run it what, what you're going to get. Bitcoin, to, to make a valid Bitcoin block, the problem that they have to solve is they have to find uh, a, a number that they can append to this thing that when you run it through the SHA-256 algorithm, you get a very low number. And you get a number that starts with like 16 zeros or 17 zeros, which is very improbable, or 40 zeros, which is very, very improbable. And that's what makes it hard. So they have to keep guessing over and over and over and over with different numbers each time 
like 55 quintillion times now is like the difficulty of how many guesses they have to get. That's what makes it hard. It's not like you have to be really smart to solve it. There's no intelligence in it. You just have to try very, very many guesses. And that's what makes it hard because you have to work hard at it. And so that's what makes a block valid. And when they find a, a form of a block that complies with Bitcoin's difficulty at the time, then they broadcast it to the whole network and everyone only needs to run the one thing. They can say, oh yeah, I run this once through the algorithm, not 55 quintillion times, but just once. And I see that it meets the difficulty requirement. And so that makes it a valid block. So that's that's what the miners are doing. They're they're trying to guess all this stuff. And, and this is what makes it decentralized because nobody can know in advance what the number is going to be and nobody knows until somebody discovers it and so it's kind of like a little miracle because it's so improbable that somebody discovers it every time and bitcoin adjusts that difficulty every two weeks or so to make it so that the blocks keep getting discovered every hour the second part of the question was um what happens when the mining reward in about 120 years runs out and miners get paid this block subsidy which is the initial distribution of the 21 million coins, which takes place over 120 years, or 130 years. Um, and, and so they're getting that. But they also collect fees uh, because people want to use Bitcoin and there's limited space in blocks. People put fees onto their transactions. And so what's expected to happen over time is fees will comprise more and more and more of the block reward. And that's what uh, miners will be paid with. Uh, I, others are welcome to add to this question. That's the quickest I can put it. Uh, but I, I have gotten a text back from this person saying, so it's just guessing. It's not solving an equation. Interesting. Yes, that's what, that's what, uh, that's what it yeah. is. Yeah, it's brute force, right? So every time someone mines a block, uh, it would take an individual several lifetimes of the universe to, to guess a single block like that. But because of the network effect of Bitcoin, we have so many people around the world and the difficulty adjustment happens every 10 minutes uh, and that's brute forcing the entire value of whole of bitcoin right that's guessing because the 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 hash the nonce from this block and the and the, the new block make up the verification of the whole blockchain of every block that's come before it so every time a bitcoin block is mined you're verifying the integrity of every single piece of value every transaction everything that's accomplished inside of that for all of its history uh, and that's that security aspect a lot of people don't understand either. You're 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 proving it every ten minutes. Right. Yeah. The follow up question I got was who sets the fees, and, and the the answer that I provided was it's competition. You pay only one sat per byte uh, for the fee when there's no congestion, and maybe as much as twenty sats per byte when there is a lot of congestion. It, it can go even higher. We'll see what the future brings. Uh, but if you're impatient, you pay and you want to get it confirmed right away, you pay more than what other people are paying to get in the front of the line. All right. I think we've uh, <clears throat> thoroughly crushed that topic. Let's keep rolling. Uh, Neo, good morning. Do you have a beginner question about Bitcoin? Hey, good morning. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think somebody asked earlier um, what's backing uh, Bitcoin. And I don't think actually people have an answer for that. Um, in my opinion, I think what's backing Bitcoin is it's either people not asking the right question, right? Like if you're trying to figure out how Bitcoin is getting its price and why it's so volatile, Bitcoin's price, right? Price and value are two different things. Bitcoin has a, a lot of value, right? The way the network is set and whatnot, but how it gets its price 
it's based off of fiat. Fiat coming in on exchange. Okay. Uh, Neo, I'm going to stop you right there for a second. Do you have a question? Uh, yeah. Go ahead. The volatility. Why is why is Bitcoin in the first place being measured in fiat denomination? Since uh, Bitcoin was created to defeat fiat and the traditional financial system, why is B uh, Bitcoin being measured? Because it's operating expenses exist in a fiat world because of overhead, warehousing, electricity, and maintenance, employee costs, and all those other things that go into creating a Bitcoin. Um, the cost of production, design, manufacturing of those ASICs, uh, right? The research that goes into improving those on a regular basis, this still exists in a fiat yeah. world currently. I'd say for the same reason, automobile engines are still measured in horsepower. Explain that. Well, I mean, horses preceded the automobile, and when automobiles came out, they were, their engines were not very powerful. They might have been like 0.3 horsepower uh, or like or two horsepower. And so you're comparing it to the old standard and we are comparing it to the old standard because the dollar has been the standard. Right. We might compare it to how many ounces of gold. Some people will say uh, Bitcoin is worth. But these are these are currency units. And there's a there's a legacy here. Right. We're operating in a fiat world and we're trying to compare its purchasing power, its store of value power, its sendability to the legacy technology. And so that's why it's it's compared. Uh, and, and and it's it's a useful comparison because we're trying to demonstrate its superiority to, to people. So uh, as, if it continues to go up in purchasing power against the dollar or if it becomes more permissionless than the dollar or more censorship resistant or more safe to store, more self-custodiable, then that's what's important to compare it to because you want to compare something to the thing that it's designed to be better than. That's the whole idea of better than. Yeah, but when you're just comparing it, that's fine. But why do we need to fiat to be able to be... Uh... When, you, when you can buy a warehouse and, and produce ASICs in Bitcoin and when you can pay your employees in Bitcoin, uh, anticipate that a lot of those people will opt out of the entire fiat system you know yeah good guy but okay say there is no fiat whatsoever who is going to determine you that's madness point. You, what are you talking about that's that's a very unrealistic situation why why are, okay i want to avoid um if possible wasting times on on scenarios that are that are unrealistic or complete fantasy because i think there are people who want to who have like important valid concerns or questions. Let's stick with the original question, and that is why why is Bitcoin perceived as volatile? Stefan, do you want to take a shot at that? So look, Bitcoin, the whole point is there is no central bank. And so typically in the normal, in the fiat monetary regimes, there is all kinds of central management. So of course it will be volatile. I think it's a, it, it, this is an early transition phase as people are running in and out, right? There are these bull and bear seasons of Bitcoin. If you just look back over, over the years, that has been the pathway historically. Now, I, I expect that will continue until, you know, for some time. We may even have multiple, we, we likely have multiple cycles ahead of us. So I think that for me is why the volatility is there. You just have to have that long-term thesis and also see that there are people out there who are actually creating Bitcoin circular economies. It's it's slow and small, but it is starting. There are people who price their, their services or products in Bitcoin terms and not just like tied to fear. There are some people who actually do this, uh, but it is, of course, small today. But I think over time, we will see more and more people 
transition over to that way of thinking, but it's it's going to take time. And I think it's unrealistic to expect that Bitcoin can just be born and everyone would just instantly be thinking in Bitcoin or in Satoshi terms. I think it's just an unrealistic expectation to have. Okay, so the, the final question then I have is peer-to-peer -peer transaction. Is there a volatility effect when there's peer-to-peer -peer transfers? So ultimately, people just do a transaction at a point in time. And so as an example, you know, if one, uh, if let's say one sats per dollar is 6,000, you know, 6,000 sats per dollar, and I'm selling you a bottle of milk, I might charge you whatever, 25,000 sats, all right, or 18,000 sats. And for that, at, at the time, that's the price it was. So that's kind of how people are dealing with it today. Uh, and there, there are some people who use fiat payment con conversion. There are other people who stay, who stay with Bitcoin and then use that Bitcoin to pay their suppliers and so on. But that's fundamentally what people are doing for today. All right, we're going to go with Ant really quick. Thanks for coming up, Neo. Appreciate it. We're going to keep rolling here. Ant, go ahead. Hey, thanks. On volatility, this is a novel asset that is under constant 24-7, 365 price discovery from all around the earth. Uh, it's got a hard cap. And, you know, we're on the, on the far left end bottom of this like massive accumulation arc. And the volatility, it's not just like Stefan said, it's not just going to, you know, we're not going to have this thing and it's just going to automatically be out there. And it's just going to be this constantly like everybody's going to know what price it is. Everyone just agrees with it. And like, that's just the way it is out of the gate. It's it, we're actually living through something remarkable, something that we haven't ever seen before as a species. This is to me where the volatility is coming from. You have all of these people all around the world. Some people say it's worth X. Some people say it's worth Y. And because it's so liquid and because of the nature of Bitcoin, it, there's this massive volatility in, inside it. And then the second thing I wanted to say is just, you know, I just want to make it perfectly clear. Uh, it, it didn't sound like it was clear. Bitcoin is not backed by anything. Like I thought that it was made clear before, but the speaker came up and asked a question. It sounded like it wasn't clear. Bitcoin is not backed by anything. And and so, you know, the, the whole backed by uh, uh, something, like money needs to be backed by something, that is a fiat fallacy. It's like, you yeah. know, here's the real thing that we're that that has the value and that humans say is money for many of the reasons that Stefan was talking about but and then here's this peg that we say that we're giving you that is like you know the the representation of this thing that actually has value oh and we're the trusted third party so just trust us and we're never going to mess up that paper side but that whole back by something is a fallacy Real yeah. money doesn't need to be backed by anything. And that's yeah, the bottom base line. Layer money. Base layer yeah. money is not backed by anything. Like even the no. US dollar, it's a it's a it's a it's it's an incorrect mental framework. The problem is even the US dollar is not backed by anything. I mean but it's an IOU. You know, if if you go back in, in history, you look at the notes, used to say gold certificate, silver certificate, redeemable in specie. Right, you could turn those into the treasury and get gold or silver from them. Today, it says Federal Reserve note. What's a note? A note's an IOU. An IOU what? If you take your Federal Reserve note to the U.S. Treasury right now and say, "Give me what you owe me for this note," what do you think is going to happen? Nothing. It's back. But the only, the only thing that's required is belief. That's it. Belief. Humans believe. That's it. And I mean, it's provable. And what we're using is funny money today. Um, the other thing really quick, this concept of volatility, 
the 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 way I've I've seen it explained that makes the most sense to me is I mean like I think the approach that it's volatile is an incorrect mental framework as well. Volatile compared to what? I think that the assumption that it's not supposed to be volatile, I think, is the problem. Okay, so people are like, and this has been started mainly by fiat fucking economists who are like, yeah, you can't use Bitcoin as money because it's volatile. <sighs> yeah, Please. I'm too. It, it, it's 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 ridiculous. Okay, why? Well, first of all, the U.S. dollar is volatile as well to a degree, but you're also comparing something that that has a massive amount of monetary energy to something that doesn't. So, to me, like the analogy that makes the most sense is if if the U.S. dollar that's circulating throughout the world is like a gigantic iceberg in the ocean. And then you have all of the other currencies floating around, all the other values, that is the ocean itself. Well, Bitcoin's this tiny little ice cube next to the iceberg. Of course, it's moving up and down more because you've got these massive quantities of economic energy that are in these things. And Bitcoin's like $320 billion worth of economic energy compared to, I think, M2 in the United States dollars, like $40 trillion. It's not even close to comparable. So anybody who comes at it and goes, well, it's volatile, it's the, it's the completely wrong mental framework. When Bitcoin absorbs the same amount of e economic energy, do you think it's going to be volatile? I don't think so. Go ahead, Tomer, and then we will move yeah. to maybe one more question and we'll move to Ray. So two really quick things. Uh, last plug for my book, which is up in the nest for free. Uh, why, chapter eight in it is called Why Bitcoin is the Path to Economic Stability. And it compares Bitcoin to a lighthouse while the, while the rest of us are being tossed at sea. The lighthouse is actually what's stable, right? Bitcoin keeps every one of its promises. It issues a block every 10 minutes. It issues new coins exactly according to the, the issuance schedule set out before. Anyone in the world can use it. Like nothing is changing about Bitcoin. In an economy, the price of things changes. That's the whole point. Like the price of things vary, right? Like volatility is such a scary word. Vary. Like the price of chocolate varies because there was a drought in Colombia or wherever chocolate is grown. The price of coffee varies because it was rainy. The price of metal of steel varies because there's been a new discovery of iron and, and coal. Prices of things vary. Entrepreneurs' whole job is to find ways to cause the price of things to vary, to, to find more efficient ways to make things. We're never going to get to a world where the prices of things never change, because that means there's no more innovation taking place and no more demand taking place and no more supply changes taking place. And the whole point of a dynamic free economy is that people are free to try to innovate within it. So the prices of things are forever going to change. People who are hooked on this notion that prices will never change are, are living in a, an idealized utopic or dystopic world depending you know try, try to write a fiction book about some something that uh the price never changes it probably end up being quite dystopian um but the thing about an economy and, and what makes bitcoin so special is nobody is fucking or <laughs> nobody is messing around with bitcoin's supply and issuance and usability and so it is not actually varying in terms of what exists as the money as the money right with the dollar we've got jerome powell you know issuing us new surprises every week or or every month raising the interest rates doing a buyback program selling 
quantitative easing, quantitative tightening. That's variance that's unpredictable, that's not creating any economic value. Right? In fact, today he's trying to destroy economic value and eliminate jobs. It's a, it sounds pretty e evil when you paint it on the surface of what's going on there. Uh, Bitcoin, nobody is messing around with its monetary policy. So it's very stable in that regard. But never will we get to a point, I hope, where prices don't continue to vary because supply and demand, the world changes. Things happen in the world that cause you know, yeah. things to change. And, that, and prices change when demand changes and when supply changes. Economics yeah, I think I, I, I agree those points certainly. I think the point, um, if we're getting if we're getting like really technical, is is that point is exactly that that the world is not stable, right? Like there is no monetary stability. Is the real kind of deeply uh, like once you've really studied the economics. But I think the the place people are coming from is it, I think that it's fair for them to ask that question of why is Bitcoin so much more volatile than say U.S. dollar, right? And I and I can understand that critique, but it, it takes there are lay, there are layers to it, and I think obviously, Tom, you're 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 speaking to it at a more advanced level. That um, what is stability, right? What is it, can there be such a thing as monetary stability? So I think that's that's one way to sort of uh, come at that same uh, question from different angles, right? All right, so we're pretty much. At I the love end sharing of the, the show. stage with you, Stefan. <laughs> I just love it. It's great. Yeah, I'm super glad that Stefan came today as well. Um, we're going to continue to do these. I think, um, you know, I've been talking to Jacob about this, doing this maybe once a week, doing a beginner Q&A, getting back to our roots. And uh, if you guys want to participate in that, we'll talk about it. Let's see if we can do this on a, on a, on a more regular thing. Um, let's do one quick, one more quick question, and then we will make some closing comments and uh, wrap the show. Zoom out. Do you have a beginner question? Welcome. Hi, thanks. Uh, it was a little more advanced and it was specific to you guys talking about the pricing and the measurement of pricing. Um, so it's not a simple one, sorry, but I was very fascinated to understand how the price might stabilize over time and what the indicators are there in terms of pricing everything in Bitcoin. I'm going to, I'll give a quick answer to that and we'll move. I, whether my answer suffices or not, <laughs> Okay, so basically, I think there's an opportunity. First of all, there's an opportunity cost. And also, there's a, there's not enough monetary energy in it yet for it to, to be more um, stable in my iceberg versus ice cube example. But the other thing is, is that um, it's not quite being used as a medium of exchange yet, which will also help stabilize. And the reason it's not in my opinion, is, is that we're still in the value accrual phase. Like there's an opportunity cost. Like there's a, many of the people holding it don't want to use it or sell it because it, we believe it's going to gain in value. I mean, we'll use it on a small scale. I'm using it on a small scale. But, um, you know, if if if, a, if you look at the, the coins that are held today, I think something like 60% or more of the supply has not moved in more than a year. And... What that tells me is that the people that are holding it think that there's an opportunity cost moving it, and that's the why it's not moving. And until that's arbitraged away, you're not you're not going to see it fully employed as a medium of exchange. And without that, you're there's still going to be that level of volatility there. Go ahead, Zoom. Yeah, thanks. I, I guess there's a bit of a reading to do on economics, but it, it's fascinating to see how the globe or the whole world might start to. Uh, equalize and synchronize in terms of how they measure and value everything around the world. Um, yeah. 
on top of that, I just I just wanted to add to some maybe to some of the newbies. I you know I've been in this space for a couple of years and thought I had a good understanding. And then I listened to Lynn Alden over the weekend, and she described Bitcoin as being unique in that it solves this abstraction of the money. And I just my head exploded because I realized somehow that actually there's a coupling of the transaction itself and the record of that transaction. And it just completely blew my mind because I, for some reason, couldn't see that until she described it. And it solves the abstraction. I think that's the double spend issue, the Byzantine generals one. But it was her description specifically on simply Bitcoin. Awesome. Yeah, it takes all sorts. Like every every one of us who explains Bitcoin will reach different people. And that's the reason why it's great to have such a great spectrum of of personalities that are doing it. Let's get to some closing comments and we'll wrap. Thanks for coming, Zoom. Uh, Tomer, do you want to make closing comments? And we'll let Stefan go and then we'll move to wrap. Um, <laughs> closing comments. Uh, Bitcoin's not that hard. Uh, it's a very simple thing that you can take custody of, use it the way it was originally intended to be used because it's kept all those promises. There's a lot of charlatans in the space. Beware of people promising easy returns, safe returns, quick returns. Uh, they're, they're all out to get your Bitcoin from you and they're, and they're selling you something different. Um, I just hope you can learn the lesson at the expense of others rather than at your own expense. And, and if the direction that it's going in is you will likely eventually own Bitcoin. So start figuring out how to own it uh, sooner rather than later. Awesome. And yeah, I want to quickly point out, before we go to you, Stefan, I just want to say thanks to Good Guy and Aunt Neil and everybody who comes up here on the regular. Um, we're really out of time. Otherwise, I'd, I'd do closing comments with all you guys. We love you guys. We appreciate you guys coming. Stefan, closing comments, and then we'll wrap. Yeah, look, I would just say don't be... Don't feel overwhelmed, right? It's very simple. Like once you've withdrawn uh, and then actually practiced doing a transaction, you'll find it's actually a lot simpler than, you know, what was thought. So I think it's a common thing where people are, maybe they're a little worried the first time they've ever done it. But then after that, I, I promise you, it's like, it's a magical feeling doing your first Bitcoin transaction, doing your first lightning transaction. I think most of us can remember our first Bitcoin and our first lightning transaction. So definitely get out there and give it a go. If you haven't already, we do have some regular webinars that we're running. So make sure you get on uh, with our Swan email list and you'll find out about those because we're hosting some webinars for that. Outstanding. Okay, don't forget I about. I think Stefan is saying it's kind of like sex. It's like the first time; it's a little scary. You don't know how it's going to work out. <laughs> but... It's not that okay. awkward. Don't forget about that. Spaces that Swan's doing a little later, eleven a.m. Pacific, two p.m. Eastern. It's going to be with Brady Swenson, Sam Callahan, and Alex Gladstein on Twitter Spaces. You've been listening to Cafe Bitcoin. The place for your morning news, preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in the industry. We do talk about Bitcoin and we do it every single day, Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. roll for two hours. If you want to learn about Bitcoin, hang out. Uh, this a podcast on Fountain Spotify. Well, if you can't catch the live show, throw me or Swan a follow to be notified of when those drop. Thanks to Swan Bitcoin, sponsor of the show. My crew, Ant, Peter, Sets for Life, Producer Jacob. I'm your host, Alex Danzig, and I work with Swan. If you want to know more about Swan, shoot me a DM. Happy to help you myself. 
Thanks again to the speakers, Stefan, Tomer, good guy, Neil, and everybody who comes up here, Peter as well, everybody who comes up here on the regular to spend your personal time, teach people about this bright orange future. We don't pay, pay people to come on this show, guys. They just do it of their own volition, taking their time to teach you about the bright orange future. This is what we call getting on the mission. If you don't know what that means, hang out, go figure it out. Love all you guys. Everybody go out there. Have a great day today.